0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Update, an audio review journal for oncology nurses. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. For this issue, we review cases from the practices of Dr. Alan Sandler and Ms. Beth Eby, a nurse practitioner. To begin, Dr. Sandler presents a 67-year-old patient who is a retired nurse.
1: She'd had a cough for a couple of months, tried some antibiotics, things didn't get better, became a little winded. Prior smoking or current smoking? Had a history of smoking in the past, quit for several years, but smoked for 20, 25 years, a pack or so a
0: day. She was working or retired? Retired. She was having some trouble breathing? Correct. Just had a
1: little bit of mild shortness of breath, and then ultimately had a chest X-ray, which revealed a four-centimeter tumor in the right upper lobe.
0: What was her state of mind, and what was her support system?
1: She was married, a medical professional. She was a nurse. She had friends who were in the medical profession as well, so a good support system. Her children had moved away, but still was married with her husband the next step she went on to see a pulmonologist who ordered a cat scan. And she had again that four centimeter mass, no pleural effusion, and no obvious lymph nodes in the mediastinum.
0: And I guess the issue there was is could she be surgically treated?
1: Right. And of course, the questions for that would include her physiologic condition. Could she tolerate removal of part of the lung?
0: Right. So what was the next step?
1: So her CT was actually a PET CT, and the PET scan lit up in the lung mass and fortunately had no activity in the middle of the chest, representing no lymph nodes, obvious lymph nodes. She then underwent a bronchoscopy, and they were able to diagnose adenocarcinoma. She then was referred to a thoracic surgeon, and She ultimately had pulmonary function studies, which supported surgery. Fortunately, they did not feel that she would need a pneumonectomy. Just a lobectomy would be enough. So then she went on to surgery and had a right upper lobectomy. She had, I believe, one positive hyalur lymph node, which are those nodes within the pleural of the lung, but had no lymph nodes in the mediastinum.
0: So what stage was she, and what is the basic staging system?
1: Right. You know, there's one staging system now with a new one to follow shortly. Fortunately, the current one is much simpler, although they're getting more and more complicated. But she would have been a T2 because her primary was greater than 3 centimeters. It was four and a half centimeters. She had N1 nodes. Those are the lymph nodes within the lung, as opposed to the mediastinal nodes, which on the same side are N2. Opposite side are N3. And if you have N1 nodes, that's stage 2. N2 nodes are stage 3A, and then N3 nodes on the opposite side would be 3B, and that would have made her not
0: resectable. What about stage 1? And what's the breakdown in terms mm-hmm. of people who go to surgery in terms of what the stages are?
1: Mm-hmm. So at presentation, non-small cell lung cancer, about 40% have metastatic disease or stage 4. About a third of the patients have stage 3 disease, either A or B, but A such that they're felt not to be appropriate surgical candidates, perhaps. So that's about 70% or so of patients that probably are not candidates for surgery, leaving only about 30% as candidates for surgery. And that can be some variation, but that's a reasonable ballpark. And so she was stage 2. Stage 1 which is lymph node negative, and actually if you try and compare it to some of the other common cancers, breast and colon, that only about 5 to 10% of patients will have stage 1, and uh, contrast to breast or colon, where the numbers are a bit higher.
0: So she came to you with the question of whether or not she should get adjuvant chemo, I would guess. Correct. And was she out there on the internet getting information? Who did she come to the consultation with? What was it like in that first evaluation?
1: She's a very bright woman, a medical nurse, and very well-informed. She was aware of the literature in terms of adjuvant therapy, that that might be something we'd be talking about. She had, in some ways, mixed feelings because after the surgery, she didn't feel like she did quite before the surgery.
0: Fatigue or
1: what was Yeah, we saw her about four or five weeks after the surgery, which is pretty typical. And she still had some pain, a little more short of breath, and just generally in that slow recovery phase.
0: Now, your discussion with her, did you actually get into specific numbers about what the risk would be of her actually having a cancer relapse and dying from the disease and how that might be affected by adjuvant therapy?
1: We did. We don't have maybe as precise a numbers as some of the folks do in breast and colon cancer, but we have some very reasonable numbers. Unfortunately, in lung cancer, we're not able to break down the specifics quite as well as we can in some of the other diseases. But the thought was that she actually had a cure rate with surgery alone of probably 50% or so. And the data would suggest that she might have an absolute benefit of around 10% or so. It varies depending on the study. There's that large YALT study, the French study, that would suggest a more modest absolute improvement of 5%. The Canadian study would suggest, as well as the ANITA study, would suggest maybe more 10 to 15% absolute benefit.
0: So instead of having a 40 or 50% chance of having a cancer relapse, which is not curable, it would go down maybe 10% to Mm -hmm. 35 to
1: 40%. Yeah, I think that's fair. And And that's the numbers we talked about.
0: What about the choice of chemotherapy? What did you discuss with her in that regard?
1: Well, we talked about in general, that the chemotherapy, the feeling was that cisplatin-based chemotherapy was probably the most well-tested, and specifically cisplatin and vinirelbin probably had the most data associated with, although that we were very comfortable with either the cisplatin, gemcitabine, cisplatin, docetaxel. And although we didn't talk about it then, as I'm talking to you today, cisplatin pemetrexed would right. be reasonable as well.
0: It's interesting. Those are the regimens that the clinical investigators like yourselves will talk about. They're the regimens in the adjuvant ECOG trial that you're very much a part of that I want to ask you about. But yet, when you look at community-based medical oncology practice, the most common regimen is carboplatin taxol.
1: Right, and that, I have to say, I think I'm not necessarily uncomfortable with. I think that there actually is some data, as you well know, the node-negative study that was done by the CLGB that was positive in 04, negative in 06, but always positive for progression-free survival.
0: That's interesting because I guess the issue there is the investigators believe that By using Carbo instead of cis, you may be trading off a little bit of efficacy, but yet the docs who want to use the Carbo are more focused on less toxicity. Right. How much of a difference do you think there is in both of those?
1: So I would say that there's a modest benefit. I do have to admit that I think cisplatin for non-small cell lung cancer is a superior drug. It may be modest, but I think in the earlier curable stages, you'd like to try and push that as much as is reasonably possible. I think toxicity, that's an interesting issue. I think it's not what it was 15 years ago when we didn't have the wonderful antiemetics. I think where you get in trouble with cisplatin, personally can be. There's some folks who just may have tremendous fatigue with it and there's not a whole lot you can do. But for the average patient and in terms of nausea and whatnot and problems, you do have to pay a little more attention and there's a little more work that may be involved And particularly with the oncology nurse, the treatment nurses. We would often like to have my nurses or I sometimes would call the patient a day or two later to see how they're doing. Because I think what often happens nowadays, we're less in tune to nausea that patients know if they're actually throwing up, that they need to call the office. But the patients that actually get in trouble are patients who are not actively suffering with emesis, but are just have that sort of queasy condition where they're just not taking in liquids, and that's where you get in trouble. You don't get in trouble with carboplatin, but with cisplatin and the renal toxicity, those are the folks who come to the office then several days later with a creatinine at two and a half, miserable, and et cetera. And I think you can catch that better if you pay a little more attention early.
0: Although, as you're saying, an agent that maybe we're doing better in terms of controlling, but still one of the more difficult agents to give in medical oncology. I'm envisioning this woman coming in four or five weeks after a thoracotomy, not feeling too great, and also confronting this devastating diagnosis. Who came with her to the appointment, and what was her state of mind?
1: So it was her husband who came with her, and I have to admit, she wasn't overly enthusiastic about chemotherapy at that point.
0: What was her state of mind in terms of the cancer? I mean, I know everyone who's diagnosed with any kind of cancer often feels a state of panic. Is that right. where she was at?
1: Well, I think it's a combination. She was trying to be comforted by the fact that the surgeon had gotten it all, and there was a good chance that she'd be done. And what she was hoping for was someone to tell her that you fit in X category. Overall, we got got 100 patients, and 55 are cured, 45 are going to relapse, and you fall in one of the two camps. And as a result, you need treatment, as opposed to the conversation that we had that we can't do that. We don't know which side you're on. It's possible we're going to give you chemotherapy that you wouldn't need, but it's also quite possible we could give you chemotherapy that's not going to work, in addition to the fact that obviously there could be a very positive outcome. And it would be nice if we could define that. And that, of course, is our... Dilemma, The holy grail of oncology, I think, is really trying to find out what patients benefit and also, just as importantly, what patients wouldn't benefit or don't need
0: treatment. So you're also involved in the major adjuvant trial out there right now, the ECOG study. What about that for this lady?
1: Right. So the ECOG study referred to as ECOG 1505, and that's actually the principal investigator is Heather Wakeley out of Stanford. And that study builds upon the knowledge that we know that chemotherapy provides a benefit for patients with resected non-small cell. And then builds upon the data from our study 4599 that showed that adding Bevacizumab or Avastin To chemotherapy, prolonged survival in the metastatic setting. So the natural progression would be to take a look at bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting. And so this study takes patients with 1B, which is node negative, but tumors greater than four centimeters, and node positive disease stages 2 and 3A, and randomizes them to chemo, cisplatin-based, four cycles, the standard, alone or with a year's worth of bevacizumab.
0: And was this something that you brought up to this patient? It is. How did she respond to the Um, idea?
1: So we had two issues that we needed to discuss. Number one, the need that I believed that she needed chemotherapy. And so trying to convince her that adjuvant chemotherapy was a good idea, that was first. And then the second was that if that was something that she was interested in, then the clinical trial, in my opinion, was the best way to treat her.
0: I guess if you think about it, we'll talk about the potential problems you could run into if you did get randomized to receive the bevacizumab. But on the other hand, it would be getting a standard therapy mm-hmm. and you're saying still there's going to be 35-40% chance that she's going to have a cancer relapse which is right. not curable, so that's not great. And maybe, being in the group, maybe she could luck out in terms of if this is going to benefit, mm-hmm. she would actually receive it. Similar, if you think about the trastuzumab receptor studies, those women who entered that study in the, around 2000, 2002, got therapy that we know had a major impact on them, whereas the rest of the population didn't get it until the trial was reported in 2005. I mean, that's the hope. Of course, who knows? There are tons of trials that don't work, but that would be the upside. What about the potential downside of her taking Bevacizumab? How does it work against the tumor? And what are the potential side effects and toxicities?
1: All of those very good points. And that's the emphasis is that my view is that it really makes perfect sense to go on the study because minimum, you're getting standard of care. So there's really virtually no downside. Now, the impact is, well, what about bevacizumab? And could it add toxicity or something that could affect the patient? It's actually rather well tolerated. The major... It's an antibody. So it's an antibody. Like
0: trastuzumab.
1: Correct. So an antibody to VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor. So that's the ligand that binds to the VEGF receptor resulting in angiogenesis new blood vessel growth. And so it's given one day every three weeks in lung cancer. It's differently in other malignancies every other week. But basically, it's given the same day as the chemotherapy, for the most part, most of the chemotherapy programs, every three weeks. So it's not necessarily any more inconvenient. The toxicities in metastatic disease, probably the most worrisome one, was pulmonary hemorrhage. But we really have defined that to be predominantly in those patients who had squamous cell histology and a history of hemophilia going into the treatment.
0: And I guess the thinking is that if you would be using it in the adjuvant setting where the tumor is removed, well, I guess this would be unlikely or couldn't happen, I guess. And so so
1: we're even including patients with squamous cell histology because there's no primary intact.
0: As long as you mention the histology, what are the major histologies of lung cancer? You said she had adenocarcinoma.
1: So, of course, there's
0: small cell
1: lung cancer, which is a totally different entity, not treated with surgery typically, which represents about 15%. The remaining 85% non-small cell are predominantly adenocarcinoma or squamous cells, and the adenos are probably the most common histology in the non-smokers. Women, light smokers or non-smokers as well. Those are the two. There's a large cell that's also in there, but adenos are probably about 45 to 50 percent, and squames about 20, 25 percent.
0: In the last couple of years, there's been some discussion about looking at the tissue type in terms of determining which chemo. You mentioned there are now four, for example, right. agents in the adjuvant setting. And of course, you also have the issue of the metastatic setting. But what about adeno versus squamous in that regard?
1: That's something that up until a few years ago didn't appear to be important at all. But now it's important for two reasons. In the metastatic setting, squamous cell patients should not receive bevacizumab because of the bleeding problems.
0: That's in the metastatic setting. In the metastatic setting, right? not in the
1: adjuvant. And then what we found is that drug that I mentioned earlier, Pemetrexid or Olympta, has now had several studies, either prospective or retrospective, that show that it preferentially works in adenocarcinomas, not in squamous cell, based on one of its targets called thymidylate synthase, an enzyme involved in DNA and RNA metabolism. That's overexpressed in squamous cell, underexpressed in adenocarcinoma, and that's felt to be the reason that it works better in the adenocarcinoma. So it's interesting that we now are starting to, at least in lung cancer, get some form of targeting of our therapy, although with pemetrexed, we're still using 17th century technology, the microscope, to make that distinction. But nonetheless, we're happy to finally be able to do something like that.
0: And I'm hearing investigators talk more about pemetrexed in terms of it being maybe more tolerable than the other agents Mm -hmm. and pretty efficacious, particularly in terms of when you select the patient. So that point has
1: been made, it was superior to cisplatin and gemcitabine in a study that was done looking at adenocarcinomas. And as a... That was with
0: cisplatin, though. That was
1: right. Both had cisplatin in, in the frontline setting. And based on that, we actually amended ECOC 1505 and have included cisplatin and pemetrexid as an option for the non-squamous cell patients with resected disease.
0: Is it your impression that it's better tolerated this some of the other agents?
1: Yes. I mean, I think they all have cisplatin in it, so they'll sure. all share those toxicities. But there's less alopecia with the pemetrexid, probably a little less fatigue, and definitely less hemologic toxicities.
0: So in terms of the bevacizumab, what did you review with this woman in terms of if she were to go into the trial and receive it? The potential specific risks and side effects.
1: So we had talked about the fact that pulmonary hemorrhage we didn't think was an issue. The only thing, though, related is bevacizumab can impair wound healing. So the study was designed to allow extra time for healing, which I actually think is another benefit potentially for the patients going on study, because instead of starting within four to six weeks, they have to be at least, I believe, six weeks out. It allows a window of six to 12 weeks from the time of surgery. And then there, are are things, proteinuria, that can occur, but typically that's more of a paper toxicity. It's rarely truly impacts kidney function. Hypertension is an interesting toxicity, particularly as your audience would know, most of our patients with certainly advanced cancer, we tend to remove their anti-blood pressure, anti-hypertensive medication. But in patients on bevacizumab or other anti-angiogenic agents, we may have to add blood pressure medication because their blood pressure may go up a bit. The vast majority are handled by the addition of one or at most two medications.
0: But had she had any hypertension in the past? Right. Okay. What about nosebleeds? I hear a lot about that. Right. So
1: there is some epistaxis that can occur, but that's typically very mild, and it's rare. I actually can remember one patient on a metastatic protocol that had severe epistaxis that required intervention by ear ENT physicians, but that is very unusual.
0: And does that go away if you stop the agent?
1: Yes. It actually can go away even while continued treatment can be a non-issue.
0: What about the, I think, kind of tricky issue about the potential increase in risk in arteriovenous events? Right. Myocardial infarctions, deep vein thrombosis, This is a common problem baseline, and it's kind of tricky to tease it out, but it seems like there is somewhat of an increase with bevisism. Is that your take? Right. There have been several studies, meta-analysis and individual studies,
1: that have shown increases in either venous or arterial thrombotic events, But they're also different across the different tumor types. Certainly, the colorectal data would suggest a higher incidence of venous thromboembolic events than what was seen in the lung, for example, although it's still a little bit
0: higher. I mean, we're talking about a couple percent, a few percent. I mean, I guess the exact magnitude is a little bit hard to define right now.
1: Right. But I think in the lung, it was more in the range of 2 to 4% overall.
0: Right. Because you had actually done the trial in the metastatic setting looking at bevacizumab. But in that case, it was with carboplatin and paclitaxel. And that really was, I think, one of the major, probably the major study, ECOG also, right. that led into the adjuvant trial. Now, in that study, did you see more myocardial infarctions and thromboses?
1: There was a slightly higher incidence of arterial thrombotic events. Actually, it's an important point, the take-home message, both very low. And I think arterial was slightly higher, and venous was the same, is what I think.
0: For practical purposes, you're talking to a woman in her late 60s, prior smoking history, Were you able to try to quantify what the increased risk might be?
1: So we talked about that. The venous thromboembolic events, I think, are fairly similar between the two groups. We also now have data earlier, when that study was done, patients who developed a venous clot would be taken off study. There's now emerging data that you can actually, based on risk and potential benefits, that you can consider treating them with antithrombotic therapy. On the arterial side, on the other hand, there are a couple of issues there are increases in the risk of uh, arterial thrombotic events. Again, fortunately low, but there is an increase. Risk factors are age, over 65, and a history of an arterial thrombotic event.
0: What about infusion reactions to bevacizumab?
1: The good news for that is, unlike some of the other antibodies that are used, is very, very rare. I don't want to jinx myself, but we have not seen one yet. And the incidence was, I think, 0.3%.
0: So when the patients finish their four cycles of chemotherapy, and then they continue with the bevacizumab for every three weeks out to a year, and at that point, they're only receiving bevacizumab, how do they feel?
1: They are able to be recovering from the chemotherapy. There's the rare patient who may suffer some fatigue from bevacizumab, but in general, they're beginning to recover and feeling better on the single agent.
0: I guess the thought I have would be that perhaps there's minimal impact in the way they feel quality life-wise.
1: Right. For the most part, most of the patients, other than the visit to the doctor every three weeks, there's not much evidence that they're receiving any therapy.
0: Now, we really don't know, even though bevacizumab, as your trial showed, really helped people in the metastatic setting, we know that we can't necessarily, we have to do the trial to see whether it really will work. It could not work. And in fact, there was just yesterday, (laughs) was it yesterday? (laughs) For the first time, a trial was presented that used bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting, but this was with colon cancer. And it was a pretty controversial and interesting trial because it wasn't positive, but it sort of wasn't flat out negative. And I don't even know if it has a relationship, I want to ask you to the trials like this one in lung cancer. Can you talk about that? Sure. So I think
1: that was the NSABP study, I think they call it CO8. So an adjuvant study using a form of full FOX with and without bevacizumab and resected colon cancer. And what you're alluding to is the fact that although it did not meet its endpoint of improvement at three-year disease-free survival. So at
0: three years, there wasn't a statistically significant difference in relapses.
1: Correct. What the controversy was, as much the trial as the presentation but there was benefit that was seen at one year, one and a half, two, two and a half years. And then the curve sort of went
0: closer together. So particularly during that first year when they were getting the treatment, right. there were 40% fewer relapses. Correct. And after they stopped the treatment, the relapse rate started to sort of slide up. And then by the time, even at two and a half years, there still was a difference. And then it sort of drifted together by three years. Correct.
1: And so one interpretation of that is that perhaps if we continued bevacizumab longer than a year, perhaps there'd be benefit that would be seen that perhaps would no longer be transient. And I have to say that that is something that both one of the godfathers of antiangiogenesis therapy, Judah Folkman, was a big believer of, that you should try and continue the antiangiogenesis therapy, particularly in the adjuvant therapy. I guess the problem,
0: though, is, for example, if you contrast it to the use of trastuzumab in breast cancer, we have the HER2 assay that'll pick out the 20 or 25% of patients that are going to benefit. We don't really have that right now for Bevacizumab or any of the anti-angiogenic agents.
1: Correct. And also, I think there's a different mindset that I think your audience would have picked up on as well. In the breast cancer studies, if you tell them about the adjuvant tamoxifen or AIs or adjuvant herceptin, and you said it was going to be for one year, the question would be, well, why not two years or why not
0: three years? Right now, they've got trials comparing five to 10 years.
1: Correct. And in ours, we have had a challenge. The patients with lung cancer tend to have a different view. And I think part of it is because the morbidity from the surgery is a little bit different friend, their age may be a little bit older.
0: I mean, if you look at this woman, though, and you said to her, we can cut your chance of relapse another 50% if you get an injection every three weeks for three years, which would have the risk, you mentioned, but maybe not affect very much how she felt. Do you think she would have done it?
1: I think if we had the data to tell her that it did do that, yes, the could was more challenging.
0: But I mean, again, she's in her late 60s. She's a nurse. She may not be a typical patient. You might have 10 people who are 75 and wouldn't want to do it. for But I guess she's not a rare type of patient.
1: No. And so I agree that I think patients would adapt if we had some data that looked promising that allowed that and people were talking about more an increased chance of cure rate. I think people would adjust in fact, I think it was Alan Vanook at one of your meetings who mentioned that there was a certain nihilism associated with colon cancer just a few years ago right. but then when the bevacizumab data broke, taximab data, etc and median survival of metastatic disease more than doubled then some of that went away so I think we need those types of cancers. I think it's going
0: to happen at lung cancer I mean what I've seen in the last 3 or 4 years is incredible we're going to talk about like 2% of it today in terms of particularly the biologic strategies. But what about the issue of could we anticipate that a trial on lung cancer looking at a bevacizumab would show the same kinds of results as a trial in colorectal cancer, or colon cancer?
1: Yeah, that's a good question that we've been talking about. I think my answer is, although it's always interesting, and one should pay attention to the other malignancies because you can look for clues and things, I would not base thoughts on what our results would be based on another disease setting. And certain examples, obviously, are 5-FU is a backbone of therapy for colon cancer. And of course, we don't use that at all in lung cancer. So certainly, there's lots of stories of drugs working one and not the other. So I'm still very enthusiastic about 1505.
0: So I'm trying to put myself in the position of this patient, having kind of maybe felt like walking out of a hurricane or something, and now looking at going back into another one. How did she respond to this discussion? What happened?
1: So she was interested in the study, and she took her time, went home, talked about it, but ultimately called us back and said she was interested in the study. It's physician choice for the chemotherapy. The randomization is basically bevacizumab or not. She was randomized to the bevacizumab arm. She did have a problem with the very first cycle. She received cisplatin venerelbin.
0: And how did she do?
1: So she had trouble with the first cycle with a neutropenic fever. She also had some mild renal insufficiency from the cisplatin. Second cycle, the decision was made to dose reduce. Um, How did she
0: do in terms of nausea, vomiting?
1: She had some mild issues. Again, it was one of those not overt emesis multiple times a day but queasiness and that along with I think the fevers associated with the neutropenic fever kind of got her a little dehydrated et cetera. but she rebounded nicely
0: no site of the infection just a fever correct cultures one of those culture negative fevers how long was she in the hospital
1: she was in the hospital I think three or four days she was actually treated at an outside institution
0: now does the bevacizumab start while they're getting the chemo
1: yeah so of so course. she also
0: got the bevacizumab yeah, yeah. how so did she do with one,
1: that I had no issues Refresher was okay the,
0: no pretenoria? No. So then what happened?
1: So then she went on to complete her four cycles of chemotherapy, the reduced dose, and then went on to the bevacizumab. She's about a year out now.
0: How had she done when she was on just the bevacizumab alone? Doing fine with that. How long did it take her? Did she, while she was on the bevacizumab, kind of, quote, get back to where she started?
1: Yes, she was able to recover and did well. You know, a little, not perhaps quite as active as before the surgery, but more related to the surgery.
0: What do you think the main reason was for her participating in the trial? Was it the hope that maybe she would be benefited, or future generations, or both? Yeah.
1: You know, I think that's a very interesting point, and patients will often say, I'd like to do it for future patients. And I find that very admirable, but what I always tell my patients is, this is a time for them to be very selfish, and they should be doing it for themselves first, humanity second. And I think they like to hear that a little bit, but she ultimately went on and finished for both. And I think it's admirable that she chose to do it for both.
0: What's her state of mind nowadays?
1: I think she's glad that she did the study and is hopeful that the bevacizumab is going to add
0: So let's talk about your other patient.
1: Okay. So another patient to discuss is one who ultimately received one of the EGFR TKI inhibitors. And this was a few years ago, but a woman who was on multiple chemotherapies. How old was she? She actually was in her at least mid-70s. It's interesting because it was hard to tell right now because her performance status was so poor, she looked like she was over 90, but in fact was between 73 and 75. Prior smoking? No prior history of smoking. So she
0: had what tissue type did she have?
1: She was an adenocarcinoma.
0: So she was a woman who had adenocarcinoma, no smoking history, had been through a whole bunch of chemotherapies for metastatic disease. For metastatic disease. So she presented with metastases.
1: Correct. She had liver metastasis, ascites, and by the time she came into our clinic was someone who was in a wheelchair, couldn't button her clothes because of the ascites, and of course had a performance status of two plus. At the time, there were studies ongoing with EGFR TK inhibitors. So this was a woman who was in the earlier, several years ago, as evidenced by the fact that she received multiple chemotherapies, and we had a study that was ongoing for Jafitnib at that point, we sort of fudged a little bit, I think, on the performance status to try and be sure that she could get on the difference between a 2 and a 3. and
0: So she was kind of coming to you in the last desperation.
1: Correct. And we basically got her on the study. She was supposed to come back to see us in a month as per the study, but we all had doubts whether or not she'd be able to come back to see us. When she came back for her second visit, she walked into the clinic. All of her clothes fit. Her performance status was virtually a zero. And it I'm was just amazing. It was very, very phenomenal. It's something that you would see with small cell maybe or a lymphoma, but certainly not a non small cell lung cancer.
0: Yeah, not with a pill. Right. So uh, she just what? had a rash. She did have a rash. <laughs> yeah. Where was the rash? So
1: she had a facial rash. And it was funny because the nurses and I joked about this because, again, she had such a dramatic improvement physiologically. But all she would talk about is the rash that was bothering her. We, we tried to mention the fact that we, you know, without this, <laughs> she probably would have died but the rash just really bugged her. Was it cosmetic
0: or was it actually uncomfortable?
1: I think it was more cosmetic. But anyway, and was,
0: you guys are going hey, you know, you know it's a, whoa, it's a rash. relative
1: thing here. Right?
0: So what happened after that? So we
1: treated her for the rash. We continued the gefitinib in this case, and she went for about a year, I think, without the disease recurrence. It was interesting again, as and I think the rash gave us the hint as to just this woman's personality. And unfortunately, I don't know if she was able to enjoy her disease-free survival as much as some other folks because she kind of seemed to sort of emphasize the negative aspects of things. And every visit was she was just waiting for when it comes back, what are we going to do or, and that type of thing. And then unfortunately, as opposed to some other patients who really enjoy that year or more that they have as a gift and kind of live their life a little bit more full.
0: So when the disease progressed, were you able to get any...
1: Unfortunately, she had been through just about everything. I think we had talked about other studies, perhaps, but I think her performance status went rather quickly, and we didn't get another try to do something.
0: So essentially, she basically had a year where she had excellent tumor control... And I guess we should mention, certainly, this is not the norm for what happens when you use a TKI, like, of course, dofitinib really isn't used right now in the United Correct. States. Erlotinib is. Is there much of a difference between the two, do you think?
1: No, I think, well, I think there is. Of course, now we use our erlotinib, and we've seen similar stories with that, and we can talk about that, its use pattern may be changing a little bit. Erlotinib, my opinion, and I think those of some others, seems to be that the difference, not so much on those with a mutation, but those that don't carry the mutation, the wild type. And as you well know, there was the BR21 study where it was compared to placebo, and a survival advantage of two months was seen from 4.7 to 6.7 months. But more importantly, a significant increase in the number of patients alive at one year. But that seemed to, at least in subset analysis, seemed to really cover all of the various subsets that we expected to do better, like the never-smokers, but also those that we didn't expect. So the male smokers with squamous cell, they also had a benefit over placebo. And I think the differences are related either to the higher dose of erlotinib relative or the closer to its maximum tolerated dose, or the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, unlike antibodies, are not as specific. They're described as more promiscuous, if you will, that they are effective on other tyrosine kinases. And it's possible, again, in my opinion, that maybe it works on some other tyrosine kinases we may not be aware of. That's the potential good news for some of these tyrosine kinases that may contribute to different toxicity profiles. So I think it's one of those two that
0: probably helps to explain it. So did this woman ever have the mutation testing, or she just... She did not. So I think mean, this is a while back, too. Can you go through what actually the mutation story is and what the mutation is? Sure. So as the audience knows,
1: the EGFR receptor is a transmembrane receptor where the ligand binds on the extracellular domain. And then intracellularly, there's a tyrosine kinase receptor there that gets activated after the ligand binds. And then that results in multiple downstream effects via other pathways that ultimately result in the pro-malignant processes in terms of growth, angiogenesis, metastasis. And so the genetic mutation that's in the tyrosine kinase domain. But the mutation's in
0: the tumor. Correct. So this isn't a mutation seen. So
1: it's not a germline mutation, which is present at birth. So for example, like
0: the BRCA gene in breast cancer, every cell in the body has the mutation. This is a mutation in the tumor. Right, that developed at some point during the tumor's life. And I guess now they've actually defined specific mutations in terms of where exactly in the genome it occurs. Correct. And then yeah. I've heard this concept of, quote, oncogene addiction, right. where these tumors are very, very dependent on this pathway. So if you block it, the tumor falls apart. Right. But so that's uh, not the typical tumor.
1: Correct. And so that's a great point. That's something to mention, that these behave, and they tend to be in the non-smokers, of course. Women seem more than men, and Asian patients even more so. In the U.S., it's probably about 15% of all patients.
0: It's interesting when you think about breast cancer and now colon cancer. Routinely, when they remove the cancer, they subject it to certain tests and assays, breast cancer, the estrogen receptor, the HER2 receptor. This mutation, I guess, is only discovered four or five years ago. Do you see things moving towards routine testing for it?
1: Yeah, I think it's complex. I think the answer is yes probably more so in the fact that maybe we might be able to utilize this drug in the frontline setting. In the second and third line setting where that earlier study that I mentioned, the BR21, where it seemed to work in everybody, I don't test in that setting because I'm going to give a trial of it, since it certainly can work in the mutation patients, but may also work in those without it. Well, plus,
0: that's an oral agent without,
1: I guess, life-threatening toxicity. Right. I mean, you have predominant side effects, as you know, rash in about three-fourths of patients, diarrhea in about half, but generally mild enough where it's rare. Less than five to ten percent that you ever have to stop the drug completely. So, but in the front line now, there's emerging data: the IPASS study, looking at it in the front line setting. And I guess that's
0: just been reported now in the last year. Year, right? By it's a new uh, Tony study. Mach,
1: out of Asia, which again, not our typical patients, but at least a hint that progression-free survival was dramatically better over chemotherapy.
0: So, you're comparing a pill to chemotherapy, right. And actually, worked better in the patients with the mutations. Correct. Yeah, it was an amazing study. It kind of makes sense. And I guess also these agents are really erlotinibs being looked at in trials in the adjuvant setting now.
1: Right. And there's the RADIANT trial where the randomization is no treatment for cystarceva with chemotherapy for appropriate patients, not part of the randomization, and those are patients who I believe are EGFR positive or FISH positive. It's not specific for mutations.
0: Now, this woman had a real problem with the rash, but you also had an excellent response in terms of the tumor. Is there a correlation between the rash and the efficacy? Still in discussion, and I think somewhat embarrassingly, you
1: would think that after all these years, we'd have nailed that down a little bit. There were two studies that were designed to address that question, and I've still yet to hear any results one way or the other
0: I think a lot of people have heard that statement. What you're saying is maybe the data is not as strong to really be sure about it. Is it your clinical impression? that
1: I've seen responses on those that don't have a rash, and of course I've seen folks with a rash who didn't. My own opinion is I look at the rash as a poor man's pharmacodynamic analysis. I know if they're getting a rash, they're at least getting enough drug. And we know there's a lot of interpatient variability with absorption. And since we don't do pharmacokinetics, that if they have a rash, you know they're at least absorbing enough.
0: Do you think some of it could be whether or not the patient's actually taking the That's, drug? Do yeah. you think this woman was taking it during that year?
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think that the other issues with rash and whatnot is A, whether they're taking it and B, how are they taking it? I've had a very recent patient, a gentleman who had trouble with a rash. It was intermittent and then it suddenly got much worse, which is typically not the way it happens, sort of intermittent and then it slowly gets better. And then we questioned him, and we even asked him about, well, you know what? Are you taking this on an empty stomach or with? And it turned out, despite all the discussions we'd had and labeling on the bottle, that he was actually taking it with his meals in the morning, which, as you know, increases the absorption and can increase the blood levels two to three times that as when they're on an empty stomach.
0: So it should be taken in a fasting state, essentially?
1: Correct.